0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have Ben Karp on the show. And we'll be talking about his new book, Rebels Rising, Cities in the American Revolution. I remember when I first went to the Soviet Union many, many years ago, something that struck me was the fact that there were very few bars in Moscow. And in fact, very few bars in major or even minor Soviet cities in general. You would think that in a city such as Moscow, there would be lots of drinking establishments, because after all, people do like to drink and Russians like to drink more than most. But there were very few of them. And I wondered why this was so. At the time, I thought it was because the Russian government or the Soviet government was trying to prevent Russians from destroying their lives with alcohol. Now I think rather differently about this. I think that the Soviet government knew that bars and pubs and taverns were the kinds of places where people met to gripe about the government and even plan revolutionary activity. They had some experience here because we know Lenin when he had lived in Switzerland was a habitué of cafes and pubs where he met with his revolutionary friends to plan the Russian Revolution. Well, it was ever thus, as we can see in Ben's book. It deals with late 18th century America, particularly major cities where people met in bars and taverns and pubs and churches and on wharfs and in squares and near market stalls and in many, many different places of public accommodation. And one of the things that he points out is that this is really where the concept of civil society, which is a little bit amorphous, becomes real. That is, these are the places where the public exchanged information and moved forward with political activity. He he calls them places of mobilization, which is a good a name as any. I really enjoyed talking to Ben today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ben. Hi, Marsha. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm pretty well. Where are you exactly? Are you in the Boston area?
1: No, I am, it is the summer I am in New York City and it is a very rainy day here.
0: Very rainy day in New York City. I see. Um so you just split your time between Boston and New York then or
1: uh, yes, I suppose. I've been on sabbatical uh-huh. and chose to spend the time away from the archives, yeah. uh,
0: uh, 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 and so I'm in New York. Well, you certainly spent a lot of time in the archives. I can tell our listeners that. Um, you've, you've visited every archive on the East Coast. I should tell our listeners, by the way, that we are talking to Benjamin Carp today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Rebels Rising. Cities and the American Revolution. It is the only book I've ever read that comes with a playlist. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, I was very interested in the playlist. But why don't we begin, Ben, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, which is to say where you were born and where you grew up and anything else that you think would be of interest to our listeners.
1: Sure. I was born, I was technically born in Queens, but brought home to a house in Woodmere, uh, New York, which is in the five towns on the south shore of Long Island. Uh, went to George W. Hewlett High School. I think I'm at least the third professional historian I know that, uh, that graduated that high school. Uh, and then I went to Yale University as an undergraduate and then to the University of Virginia for my Ph.D.,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and then I taught at the University of Edinburgh for a little while, and now I'm a professor at Tufts University.
0: Tufts University. I, l- I actually used to live uh, in Somerville near Tufts, and I spent, um, I don't know why this is relevant to anything, but I spent tons of time running around the Tufts track. I loved that track. Yeah, it was I, I a pretty t- nice track. Yeah, yeah, I used to just run five miles there almost every day. I just loved that wow. track, yeah. Um, and, and, and I lived in Davis Square. That was before it was hip. I lived in Davis uh-huh. Square before it was uh-huh. hip. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't hip at all. Um, uh, anyway, so how, how did you uh, how did you choose this particular topic in in graduate school? Why why um, cities in the American Revolution?
1: Well, I I came at cities and the American Revolution when I was an undergrad graduate oh, okay. actually. And it all it all came from a throwaway line in uh, in a famous uh, William and Mary Quarterly article by Alfred F. Young on the shoemaker George Robert 12 Hughes. This was a shoemaker who had participated in the Boston Tea Party and was witness to the Boston Massacre and uh, etcetera, etc. Cetera. And at one point during the article, uh, Professor Young has a throwaway line where he says uh unlike his brother and unlike uh, Ebenezer Mcintosh who was a crowd leader in Boston uh you know uh, George R. Robert Twelfth Hughes was not in, involved in a lot of civic organizations he wasn't in a fire company uh and so on and i say and at that point i read that line and i say well hold on well, hold on what did it mean to be a member of a fire company uh in the cities in the years leading up to the american revolution and so uh, I was uh, I was in a, a, a junior year seminar being taught by John Bemos on the social history of the American Revolution, and I wrote a very bad paper in which I uh, <laughs> spouted off about fires and firefighting in a very disorganized way. And then I kind of uh, spent the summer thinking about it, and then uh, and kind of refined what I wanted to talk about, and then I wrote a senior thesis on firefighters and the american revolution and their political participation uh... uh... their their political affiliation what role it meant to be a part of a volunteer organization uh... in these years where this idea of political volunteerism becomes very crucial for uh... for the revolutionary movement Mm -hmm. uh... and so later i revised that in graduate school and it's now a kind of standalone article in the in the william and mary quarterly uh, but I knew I was going to have to think bigger than just firefighters uh, if I was going to write a dissertation. So uh, in, uh, in conjunction with uh, Pierre Onuf, who was my principal advisor at the University of Virginia and, and working with uh, a lot of other faculty as well, I came up with this idea of talking about political mobilization in a broader way uh, as it happened in the five largest cities of, uh, of British North America in the years leading up to the uh, to the American Revolution.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you're in very good company studying um, firefighters. If, if I recall correctly, and one of our listeners I'm sure will send me an email about this, uh, Gibbon talks about firefighters in the uh, Roman Empire, and one of the things he says, if I recall correctly, and it's been 25 years since I read this, uh, he said that Christians... Um, refused to serve in the volunteer fire service, <laughs> and were a great drag on the uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, this is one of the many things that he said uh, knocking Christians in the 18th century. And then I have a friend that studies firefighters in um, Russian, the development of Russian civil society um, in the 19th century. Is there is there a broad Why'd strain be- of firefighter? Studies in civil society. I'd be I'd be I'd be
1: interested to hear about that uh, that, that Russian study. I've run into a few other uh, students of firefighting in my time. Uh, it is a great topic because it does give you this uh, this entry point into thinking about a lot of other broader themes uh, in American history, for instance. Uh, you know, you can, uh, you can talk about, uh, affirmative action, right? That's the, the case that, uh, that Justice Sotomayor right, is, yeah, you right. know, have pointed to. Uh, you can talk about 9-11. You can talk about, uh, you, you know, various aspects of, uh, of racial acceptance, uh, you know, ethnic groupings, uh, mm-hmm. gender equality. Uh yeah so and and for me you know being someone who's principally interested in the 18th century uh it was a way of of talking about the the
0: revolution. Yeah I mean it's interesting because the the thing that struck me while reading your book I kept thinking about the word civil society uh, which I think is really um a kind of a loose and baggy concept. I don't really know what it is. Uh, but but when, when reading your book, I, I, it brought to mind the notion that m- most all, all cities have to have things like firefighters. They also have to have things like taverns. We'll come to that in a second. And, and if you give people the opportunity to organize themselves, in this instance, organize a fire brigade, they might well get a taste for it uh, and, and yeah. feel a certain amount of confidence that they can organize themselves. And this is interesting in the comparative perspective because... Uh, in the Russian case, and I studied Russia almost my whole career, the state almost never allowed anybody to organize anything, and so they right, lost right. that taste for it completely, uh, and and they they really wouldn't do anything without some order from above, and and this 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 reticence to embark on self-organization and self-expression really cost them dearly when I guess I would say just modernity happened, because it was it was bound up with. Self-organization of various kinds, and the Russians proved to be extraordinarily uh, uh, unfit for it. They were fit for a lot of other things. I don't want to knock them. Um, I mean, they built the largest empire in world history, uh, but they, that that they could not bring off. But anyway, let's let's go right to um, let's go right to the content of the book. I, I love the way this book is organized, by the way. And I would suggest anybody who is thinking about writing a dissertation or writing a book uh, look at this book. Uh, in, in terms of the way it's organized, because it's it's studies of particular things in particular cities. The things are different and the cities are different. So it has a beautiful symmetry. Each chapter is a different city and a different institution. Can I call it an institution? I don't know if I can. Uh, uh,
1: sure. I, I I like the term sites of mobilization. Okay, or sure. places uh, absolutely. Or mobilization. Absolutely,
0: because we don't usually think about a bar or a pub or whatever as, a, as an institution, but I guess it is a uh, site of mobilization. So I would say it's, it's a wonderfully organized and completely telegraphic um, way to structure uh, what you're talking about, and so I, I congratulate you on that. But why don't we just begin with the the, uh, the very first uh, chapter, if I recall correctly, and that is about um, Bean Town and the wharf there, the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. Well, the, 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 uh, the, uh, you, you, you always have to start with Boston almost because Boston, you know, is very often setting the pace for, uh, you, you know, for revolutionary action. Uh, and this, in this chapter, I talk about uh, – I wanted to kind of lay out a little bit what the social and economic world of the city looked like. Uh, and so I, uh, I looked at the Boston waterfront because the waterfront fueled so much of w- what a trading city uh, was all about. Uh, but it's not uh, obviously just an, an econo- a place of economic importance. It also becomes a place of political importance. Uh, I, I look at two principal reasons. I guess I could boil it down to two principal reasons. Uh, for one thing, you have Parliament passing various trade restrictions, and that that's going to be something that affects the waterfront directly. Uh, and you also have, uh, uh, members of the Royal, uh, officers in the Royal Navy impressing sailors, uh, occasionally off of the harbor in Boston, with, meaning that they would involuntarily Shanghai a, uh, a, a, a Boston resident and say, you're in the Navy now, <laughs> uh, and which was not a, 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 a situation you could escape easily. And uh, and and also it, it didn't pay as well as being uh, a merchant sailor, and so people were often reluctant to join the Royal Navy for that reason. Uh, and this isn't, you know, this is maybe a minor story in the in the larger revolutionary revolutionary tale, but it's uh, but it does kind of it it is one of those encroaching oppressive things that makes people on the Boston waterfront a little bit insecure. Both these customs regulations, these trade restrictions, and impressment are two things that are making the waterfront a very fraught place to be in in Boston, where people are very aware of their political rights uh, in, in the years uh, from the 1740s uh, to the 1770s.
0: Hmm. And so, uh, what what was it about the wharf that radicalized people? And I mean, the thesis of your book is that these places actually uh, aid in the mobilization of uh, political um, of political action. What, what was it about the wharf that um, that mobilized people?
1: One of the things about the wharves and the docks, the, the, you know, the place that you can broadly conceive of, and the counting houses, the places that you can broadly conceive of as the waterfront, is that it, it's, a, it's a place where people from all walks of life in Boston are congregating. So you have the merchants who are at the kind of top of the food chain. You have shipbuilders and retailers who are, you know, for middling folk, uh, during that time. And you also have the various workers who are building ships, building barrels, uh, you know, carting goods back and forth, uh, manning the ships, the the coastal ships or transatlantic ships. And so the fact that you have all of those people congregating together and you know we're very uh... uh, you you know in an older time of historiography we'd say oh well you know they're going to be at each other's throats because they have these very different class interests but on the other hand in order to make the waterfront run, in order for trade to flourish uh, well, you know, some of that's going to be out of your control because of the, of the nature of the transatlantic market, but, uh, it, you know, everyone is going to have to work together in order to make that waterfront run. And I don't want to romanticize that too much, but, uh, but that, that is what it is about the waterfront and the mm-hmm. city more generally that makes it a really interesting place to study. And during, uh, during the revolutionary years, what happens is, is that, People come to conceive of that waterfront not just as a place that connects it to the rest of the world for trade, but it also becomes this kind of borderland between Boston itself and the rest of the world, and it's a borderland that can go either way. Either their loyalty is going to be to the British Empire, which controls most of their trade, or all of a sudden, it's now going to be to Boston itself, or to America, and that's the big decision that everyone on the waterfront suddenly has to make as they start to become annoyed with the policies of uh, of the British Parliament,
0: mm-hmm. uh, etc. Mm-hmm. How does the uh, how does something like that, a well known historical occurrence like the Boston Tea Party exemplify the ways in which wharfs aid in mobilization, or does it? well
1: i mean you, you, uh, you uh, that i mean that's one of many examples from the book of things that happen uh, that happen on the waterfront and for good reason uh, uh what happens is is that the again it it starts out with a, a parliamentary restriction uh you, you know there's already a tax on tea and what the tea act of 1773 says is not only are we going to keep that tax on tea but the east india company is going to have special rights to bring its tea directly to Boston, which will enable it to sell uh, to sell to sell tea more cheaply and undercut uh, Boston merchants themselves. So this is this is annoying Bostonians uh, for for many many reasons. And so the the ships come in with this cargo, and all of a sudden the big controversy is are these are we uh, is are the Boston crowds going to allow these ships to land, or will the Boston crowds be able to convince? The owners of the ships, the captains of the ships, local officials, to turn those ships around, send them back to London without unloading their cargo. And so it's at the waterfront that that question becomes crystallized. That that question becomes of crucial importance. You know, is is that tea going to land there or not? The waterfront, you know, literally is the the border, the entry point mm-hmm. uh, into into Boston. And so uh what what ends up happening is you know in, in other ports in New York and Philadelphia they are able to convince the, the 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 captains of those ships to to turn around and go back to London but in Boston the the owner the the owners of the tea cargo are a little bit more stubborn and they do not instruct those uh... The, those captains to turn around and they' their laws enforce. you can't just turn around the ship. you really are supposed to uh... you know enter your ship and pay duties on the on the cargo you've got before you can before you can land. And so there's a twenty day deadline uh... you know, where you had to where where that those ships were going to have to unload their cargo, and the day before that deadline expires, the Bostonians say, "Okay, you know, we gave you every opportunity to turn the ship around, uh, uh, and, and instead, they they end up dumping the cargo." Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Bostonians really would have preferred if the ships had just gone back to back to Great Britain, and so they later blame all these, you know, these stubborn tea agents and stubborn government government officials who didn't. Uh, uh, allow that to happen. The, the, the point of the, of looking at the space of the waterfront is that, you, you know, it's, it's a place like that, this dynamic place where everyone was supposed to be working together, where you're trying to decide what your identity is, you know, where cargo and people are coming and going. Uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise at all that Gr- Griffin's Wharf becomes the site of an action, like the of a political action like the Boston Tea Party.
0: Mm-hmm. I have to ask this because I've always kind of wanted to know and I've been too lazy to uh, ever really look it up. Why did some of them dress like American Indians?
1: Oh, I just wrote, uh, I'm, I'm working on another book on the Boston <laughs> Tea Party I, right now. And I just a whole chapter I on that. Uh, <laughs> For many, many, many reasons. Uh, I, you know, uh, Phil DeLoria wrote a book called Playing Indian, where he begins to explore this question, and he says it's a way of saying, okay, we are not quite British, right? They'd seen all these uh, uh, allegorical prints and paintings that always tended to depict America as, uh, as an Indian woman or an Indian man. So if you looked at a Native American, you thought, okay, that's an American. But at the same time, they still have their you know, white faces for the most part Mm -hmm. underneath. And so they knew they weren't quite Native American either. And so this becomes this kind of founding moment when Americans decide, okay, we are no longer European, but we're not quite uh, Native Americans, indigenous people either, and we're something in between. And so they, you know, they have a very positive view, view of that, of saying, oh, we're too free to be Europeans, and yet we're not so savage as to be Native Americans—that's that's their way of thinking. On the other hand, you could say, well, they're you know too crude to be Europeans and not uh, and and not quite uh, free enough to be uh, to, to be Native Americans. Uh, so there's there's multiple ways that you can that you can look at that. You can look at that. Sorry, yeah, uh, I just and the, the, I mean the the main thing is well, were they did they actually think that, uh, that this would enable them to not be cost? Uh and that's an interesting question. In, in in many crowd actions you'd have people say, uh, look at a bunch of people who thought they were disguised and say, I know you and I know you, because I mean Boston, for instance, is a town of only sixteen thousand people. Everybody pretty much knew who everyone was. Mm-hmm. And so were they actually trying to conceal their identities? I don't know. I think uh the the, the the disguise is meant to send a message saying, You might be able to tell who we are, but you'd better not tell anyone who we are. Uh, because our, what this disguise means is we are trying to be quote persons unknown, mm-hmm. and so you you know you better not uh, better not give us up, otherwise you know because we don't really feel like being prosecuted or being liable to a civil suit from the East India Company. I, I so imagine it, it's
0: I, I was, was going to say I imagine the um, the historiography of this uh, particular and peculiar question is very interesting. That is to say that. Um, I imagine there have been a lot of different takes on why they dressed as Indians, and I imagine there are moments at which it might not even have been mentioned. I don't know if you go into that in your book, but
1: uh... well, yeah. I mean, there there are people in the 1820s and 1830s who try to claim, oh, I don't remember any of us being disguised, and uh, you, you know, but it's it's very clear that the, that mo- that the at least the core group of people definitely had. Disguises. Some of the disguises were not that thrilling. You know, some people just wrapped a blanket around themselves and kind of smudged their faces with whatever was handy, mm-hmm. and that. And then they said, "Oh, okay, now I'm a Native American," and mm-hmm. they seemed to have talked in a kind of um, dialect that they claimed was a Native American dialect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, but that and that's also kind of a uh, it's a playful sort of show. And uh, but for the most part, it hasn't been thought of as an interesting historical question why they disguise themselves until the last ten years. So it's uh, 10, ten, fifteen years. So it's actually a very uh, a more recent question than you'd think that uh, now that historians are doing more cultural history that all of a sudden it's uh, it's a new way of getting at you, you know the 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 voice of the inarticulate, right? Mm-hmm. We could say, oh, well, this is a way of looking at uh, festival disguises and things and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's connected to a larger literature on carnival, mm-hmm. on, on festivals, on May et etc. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's very interesting. I'm sorry, I have to follow up with one more question. Um, sure. I'm sure that our listeners are probably getting upset with this digression, but uh, did the, w- was their idea of Indians generalized, or did they have particular Indians in mind? They
1: did. They uh, uh, their Mohawks seem to be the first tribe that they are called in the public press. Mm-hmm. Someone else privately calls them Narragansetts, uh, and then in a poem by Mercy Otis Warren, she refers to them as Tuscaroras. So those are the three identities mm-hmm. that they get, uh, and then it becomes interesting. You know, when when a fourth T-ship washes up on Cape Cod, you have John Adams writing, oh, I hope the, the Mashpee Indians w- uh, of Cape Cod will, will take care of this. And so they start to ascribe specific regional identities to, you know, different parts of America and saying, oh, if you're dressing up as an Indian and you're from Cape Cod, then you're a Mashpee Indian. And so they do, do come up with uh, specific tribal appellations. Mm-hmm. And I, I talk about that in the chapter, why, why did they pick the Mohawks? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was it about the history of relations between new england and uh and the iroquois that uh that informed that particular idea and the Narragansetts, I think intrigued them because they were interested in the idea of a king of the Narragansetts and that there was an American king who was uh who was fighting against uh who was fighting against Parliament mm-hmm. and the, and and that later becomes the british king who they're who they're fighting against, but there was this idea that there was a Narragansett king who protected all Americans. And that uh, that becomes part of the
0: story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, enough for the time being about um, dress up uh, Native Americans. Sure. Let's let's move on. I had one more uh, question just about this particular chapter and and, and this business about uh, Boston. And that is you, you mentioned crowds. I, I think I recall. And again, this has been two hundred and fifty thousand years ago uh, in graduate school. I, I read a book by a guy named Georges Roudet called The yeah. Crowd in History. Am I wrong about that?
1: Did this, did uh, that's this, is probably that, about right. He's uh, Rude and uh, and E.P. Thompson and, and and other scholars of, uh, of of Europe have been very influential on early Americanists who are looking at crowd action oh, really? okay. leading up to the American Revolution. Yeah,
0: that, was uh, that, own, was, that was my only. That was my only question. I I just thought that this. I, I remember reading this uh, literature. I remember also reading the Moral Economy of the English Crowd and. In graduate school, that's a to- uh, work by Thompson and, and, and then that uh-huh. day book. I, again, I just I, I just I just wanted to suggest to the listeners that there was a bit of a background here. So let's move on to um, uh, taverns and bars and pubs and things like this. And then we move on to New York sure. City, where you are right now. Uh, uh, why don't you go ahead and talk about uh, that chapter and the way in which taverns served as a point of mobilization?
1: Uh, well, that uh, is a really fun chapter. Whenever I run into someone at a bar, you know, I can I can say, oh, I'm I'm doing research uh, when I'm in New York City. Uh, ta- taverns, uh, taverns are a, a particularly exciting place for political mobilization to take place, because on the one hand, you have these 18th century m- middle class and upper class men who are you know, struggling in this kind of new uh, early modern world and trying to to organize their lives and you know, in a place like America there isn't really an aristocracy to speak of and so it's very difficult to know where everyone stands and so you have this polite tavern culture that develops and it has its own rituals and some of them are very polite r- rituals but some of them are rituals that revolve around getting drunk and so taverns are also interesting because not only are they an, 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 an attempt to make the world orderly, but they're also particularly disorderly places. Uh, they are places where people uh, get drunk, where they have competitions to see who can hold their liquor the best. Uh, they, they are places where drunkenness often, sometimes, degenerates into into violence. Uh, and, uh, and, and basically they are, they're, they're particularly interesting places for politics to take place because we think that politics is supposed to be something of a rather orderly nature. But of course, as you're thinking about resistance to parliament and the American Revolution, that's something that's disruptive of the social and political order. And so how can you make that kind of disruption happen in a tavern and yet control it? So this gets at one of the crucial uh, questions of the, of the book, of Rebels Rising, which is, uh, yes, political mobilization is all very well and good, but how do you keep it under control, and how do you do so particularly in a tavern?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if I recall correctly, the Sons of Liberty, uh, whom our listeners may know about, they met in bars, didn't they? Am I, am I wrong yeah. about that? Yeah, they did. Yeah, uh, that's, uh,
1: that's basically how they get to, that's where, that's where they're going to go to meet is at a tavern because that's a place that isn't, it's not a public building, right? It's not the townhouse or the state house. So it's not something that's an official government place, but it is a place where People can get and to- people can get together that isn't just somebody's you know an individual person's parlor it's a place that's kind of semi public and it's it's part of as you said as you said before, civil society uh-huh. and so it's a place that isn't quite controlled by the government but is a place where you can have random encounters and possibly recruit other people who might be sitting in the tavern with you,
0: yeah, yeah, now to go back to the Russians again, about whom I know quite a bit, the Russians were very worried about revolutionaries in bars, so they just didn't allow people to have bars. Um, this was true of the Soviets as well. Uh, did, did, did the British attempt to close down drinking establishments?
1: No, the British, the, British, the British knew their own culture. I mean, I, I don't see how they could have sustained any kind of peace at all if they tried to close down bars. Uh, uh, New, York, New York City in particular is a place where... Uh, the city hall used to meet in a bar when the Dutch first uh, first came to America. Is, uh, the, that's where they ran the, the, the government The government of the city and the colony was from a bar because very often it's just a larger building than an ordinary household, and until you get around to erecting a fort or a city hall or something like that, the the bar is the place where people are going to collect. And when the British take over New York City from the Dutch and you have... Walloons and uh, and African Americans and French and people from uh, you know many different cultures gathering together in a a diverse place like New York City, what else do they have in common but a desire to get drunk and so I don't think the British ever would have uh, given the importance of taverns and coffee houses back in london i don't even though it, it very often becomes a thorn in the side of the the ruling party during the 18th century. I don't think they ever. Uh, I mean, I don't know my in my British history as well, but I don't think they ever would have seriously entertained closing down uh, closing down taverns. Uh, I, I I just think it would have been such an uh, an unpopular move because drinking was the thing to do in the 18th century
0: mm-hmm. and the 20th. The uh, well, it does point up an interesting cultural difference, and that is again speaking as a, a native Midwesterner, when um, people are planning rebellion and revolt here in the Midwest. Ordinarily, we meet in the basement of the Lutheran church and drink coffee. <laughs> we don't. We don't meet in bars, but we do have a big bar problem here in the Midwest. I think all over the United States, actually, especially in college towns, they, they, it's a yeah, it's a the 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 way people drink is I don't know. I have some I have some questions about it, but I do understand what you mean uh, about bars being uh, the kind of places where people will uh, meet and plan uh, revolution. Is it was there? Um, w- are, are there are there any famous bars that are still around uh, in New York the, City where they did this kind of thing? The closest you've got is
1: Francis Tavern, which is a restoration, uh, and you can there, there's a museum on the upstairs because this was the place where George Washington said farewell to his troops, uh, and then there is a working restaurant on the first floor, so you can go to the you know the, the the southern tip of Manhattan, and you can go to Fran- francis tavern and that would be, that would be the only surviving tavern from this period that that you could visit, and even then it doesn't really look like it did in the eighteenth century mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. now now when they met uh, in these bars to plan things uh did they drink i and yeah. I ask that because well, it's often the case that drinking goes with a rather non productive activity um and it's just my own yeah. personal opinion but
1: yeah well, but i I think because. Fresh water uh, tended to be a little bit more dangerous to drink in the 18th century. They were drinking alcohol more frequently, and I think that they had a better tolerance than we do nowadays. Mm-hmm. And uh, So that's one thing that, that, that we ought to say. And, you know, there were people like William Smith uh, who were uncomfortable with the amount of drinking that happened at these sort of meetings, and so they did try to limit themselves to a glass of wine or two. Uh, but, yes, whenever you... Uh, have the records of a, a group like the Boston Committee of Correspondence meeting at a, well, they tended to meet in the Selectman's Chamber, but if you, a group like the Freemasons meeting at the Green Dragon Tavern or something like that, you generally... See, uh, how it, it, you generally see in the bylaws of the group you know, the, the rules for settling the tavern bill, and very often you can see the, the bill that, uh, that, they, that they paid. And so, yes, they were definitely drinking punch and sometimes eating as well. I mean, you could, you could also get a meal in the tavern. It wasn't mm-hmm. just, about, uh, mm-hmm. just about drinking.
0: Yeah, Of course, the most famous revolution ever fomented, and this one unsuccessfully in history, is uh, the Beer Hall Putsch, and that one went all pear-shaped. Thankfully, <laughs> um, in any event, uh, that was Hitler, by the way, for those of you who don't know. the uh, Yeah, so let's why don't we move on to um, a rather more um, uh, peaceful, let's hope, uh, well, maybe not, uh, the peaceful confines of, um, of Newport. And there you talk about religious establishments, uh, of which there were a surprising number. Go ahead.
1: Yes. Yes Newport is a very diverse place i mean if i had if I had uh, concentrated on Boston in my chapter of churches, I would have been telling a very different story because the the loyalists and friends of government in Boston constantly accused uh, ministers in Massachusetts of fomenting revolution, uh, and so the church uh, you, you know especially dissenting churches in New England were as dangerous as uh, as taverns, as places where political mobilization took place, you could have a minister giving a fiery sermon, you know, that uh, that related to the the conflict with with Great Britain and was 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 mobilizing people uh, in a way that was every bit as potent as the way that that alcohol and the freedom of a tavern could mobilize people. But Newport is a little bit different. The congregational churches, the ones uh, presided over by Ezra Stiles and uh, and Samuel Hopkins, those uh, those were places where patri- where people who be- later became known as patriots tended to congregate. Those those were places where political mobilization was tending to take place. But in Newport, because it's Rhode Island rather than Massachusetts and Connecticut, the Congregationalists are a distinct minority within that community, uh, and most of that that community are. Uh, are Quakers and Baptists, and then you also have Anglicans who are very uh, very significant pre- presence and Jews and Moravians uh, and uh, and and people people like that. So Newport, because it's such a diverse place, mobilization a religiously diverse place, mobilization in churches, and as it happens, mobilization in the rest of the city becomes a little bit more difficult because Anglicans tend to be supporters of the British crown. Quakers were pacifist and, uh, and felt that they ought to be, uh, obedient to the, to, to the, the government in charge. Uh, and Baptists didn't, uh, like the Quakers and Anglicans just didn't trust the Congregationalists who were running around and fomenting this revolution. And so what you get is what I call a civic impasse. Everything kind of grinds to a halt because you can't, uh, uh because religious, uh, acrimony is, uh, is, is sufficiently uh, bitter that it's very difficult to organize people together, even though Newport had been, for the most part, a very tolerant place where, for the purposes of business, everybody, people from different religious backgrounds, got along with one another very well. But when it came to this very contentious question of the revolution, it's harder to
0: organize people together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I, I don't trust, um, congregationalists to this day, to be honest with you. But <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 so did the, did, did the, I have two questions. One is separation of church and state, something we all know about. There was no notion of this then at the time? I mean, it, it does get enshrined in the Constitution later.
1: Well, there is. I mean, there, there is a state church. There's the, there is the, there's the Church of England. But mm-hmm. in New England, there in Massachusetts or in Connecticut, it's the Congregational Church that's the established church instead. Mm-hmm. And Rhode Island does not have any uh, established church at all. Rhode Island, Pennsylvania is is the same way. Most of the the Quakers had, had basically founded the colony, but there was no kind of established church that everyone was forced to pay taxes to. But that is true into the 19th century in Massachusetts and... And uh, Connecticut, uh, that they that you kind of have to pay lo- local taxes to the Congregational Church, and the the, the Baptists get in in that Massachusetts are getting upset about this before the Revolution even starts. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and then and then the Church of England is established in in the southern colonies. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. but it's a it's a it's called a kind of low church Anglican Anglicanism that someone like uh, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson are are, are subscribing to, and so they you know, aren't as hierarchical as what's called high church Anglicanism, which is what tends to prevail in these uh, these, in these battered outposts of, of the Church of England in,
0: in New England. So these multiple churches in um, Newport, did, did they help or hurt the revolutionary cause? It seems like they would hurt it because they would uh, divide people rather than unite them against British tyranny. Am I wrong about that?
1: Well, without without the organizational capability of a church, uh, it, it 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 is hard to in in this society where people are very religious. It is hard to get a political movement going. Ironically, and so the congregational churches do become useful for political mobilization. The problem is is that the congregationalists aren't the majority, and so the and so you do have people of every religious background you have quakers and baptists and jews who support the revolution uh but uh but the, 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 and and you do and you do have a you know a patriot movement that uh that is somewhat successful in newport but uh it's just harder to uh it, it, it's harder to get people together along religious lines in particular and i should say that new york is just and philadelphia are just as pluralist as newport and they have very successful revolu- revolutionary movements one of the other problems that happens in newport is that after 1774 there's a naval presence in the in the harbor and that that kind of prevents mobilization of any kind whether within a religious setting or within a secular setting yeah so um yeah. So, but but uh, but in New York and Philadelphia, they face some of these same challenges. Of uh, you really have to work at overcoming r- religious differences sometimes in order to uh, put this sec- secular movement together. And so, at some times in Newport and New York and Philadelphia, they're successful at overcoming these religious differences, especially uh, organizing against the Stamp Act, for instance. And sometimes they're less successful.
0: And and, and let me ask this really quickly. You may not know uh, the wh- how involved. Uh, by some metric, were clergymen in the um, rebellion?
1: Well, clergymen are not technically supposed to hold political office. That mm-hmm. was uh, that was considered uh, something of a taboo uh, in, in New England uh, and, and and then beyond. But they are providing aid and comfort to the, not all of them. You know, some of them are definitely uh, become outspoken loyalists. Uh, you know, particularly some of the New York, uh, cleric, uh, uh the Anglicans at, uh, and so on. So you have some very outspoken loyalist, uh, members of the clergy, but you, but you also particularly congregationalists in, in Massachusetts and, uh, and, and Connecticut and Rhode Island, uh, who are providing aid, aid and comfort to, uh, to this rebellion by making, making inspire, giving inspiring sermons, uh, it's possible that in small towns where the clergyman was the most literate person present that they were helping to draft, uh, patriotic resolves in some of these small towns. Uh, 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 clergymen often had very good connections among the wealthy and influential people in town and so they could write letters of introduction when, uh, when patriots were traveling from one place to another and so they're providing help behind the scenes and sometimes very overtly in terms of the sermons that they give and the Thanksgiving days that they host. And when they host women uh, spinning homespun cloth uh, in the church or at their homes. And so, yeah, they're, 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 they're helpful. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. The reason uh, I, the reason I ask is um, I've always wondered about this question uh, because given my reading of, let's say the apostle Paul, It's very difficult to square uh, sort of conventional Christianity with the notion that you should overthrow even tyrants. Um, So uh, if they did speak in a kind of what we would think of as a a religious language about uh, the rebellion, if they did use religious texts, which were one of their touchstones as a a basis for the rationale for their rebellion, I I always kind of wondered, and again, maybe everybody knows the answer to this question, I always wondered kind of how they worked their way around that. That is, well, I, I mean, I, you, you know, you sh- really should, uh, you know, uh, even overthrowing a tyrannical king is not not really advised uh, by um, mainstream Christianity. I think.
1: Well, when it's uh, if it, if if you think that you've got the right answer for practicing Christianity and no. you think that uh, a government is threatening civil and religious liberty, then you can kind of justify it because then you become a, a, a kind of a, a oppressed in the same way that the original Christians were. Uh, were oppressed, but, uh, I know of another scholar who's working on, uh, on chaplains, uh, for the American side during the, the revolution, and so she would probably be able to get at that question a little bit better than me. But yeah, they, they find biblical verse to justify what they're doing, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, but then I, Thomas
1: Thomas Paine, uh, uses a little bit of, uh, uh, biblical language actually in, in common sense. I mean, that was how you knew how to connect to ordinary Americans because you knew that most of them had read their Bible. Mm-hmm. And so biblical verses are invoked all the time uh, mm-hmm. during, the, during the revolution.
0: Yeah, I always find it very interesting when uh, Christians look for a textual basis for um whatever radical and political radical, politically radical activity particularly, um, they, they tend to become Jews rather suddenly and start talking about uh, about the Hebrews in Egypt. That, that those seem to be like the place where you, you right. get the, well, the, the really the money shot. The, yeah. In the Old
1: Testament, the Jews uh, got away with being a lot more violent and God Himself was a lot yeah. more wrathful. But yeah, uh,
0: exactly, but those Jesus are
1: the tried to change the tone in the new in the New Testament.
0: Right, exactly. But that's where that's where you go for you know uh, sort of people being op- God's people being oppressed and then sort of rebelling or being freed by the Lord. So it's interesting. I was you know these things are they're tricky. They really are because some of the, the, the way in which the Bible has in, in both its books, the Hebrew Bible and the, and the Christian Bible has shaped um, Western political culture is, is just a fascinating topic. Uh, it's a little bit like the way uh, I, I think the Supreme Court reads the constitution every year. And you can see if you study the Supreme Court at all, you can see that, that uh, that the same language has been interpreted in, in diametrically different ways over the, past 200 years. And the same is true of a lot of biblical texts that they were read one way a long time ago, and they're read entirely differently today. And I, I personally find that process, um, fascinating in, in Christianity, we call it, or they call it, uh, the doctrine of continuing revelation. I always really like that very much. Continuing revelation, if it, yeah.
1: If it weren't for uh, a successive reinterpretation of, of texts over succeeding generations, I, I think historians would be out of business. Yeah, so damn uh,
0: straight. I think you're absolutely right about we, that.
1: You yeah. got to appreciate that process.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's, Um. It's. You're, you're really quite, you know, who's really good on this is Quentin Skinner. I don't know if you ever read his work on early modern political philosophy. Yeah, but yeah. He wrote, wrote some books, I think, called The Fundamental of the Western Political Philosophy, something like that, I can't remember, but two volume book, and it, he, he talks a lot about how these texts were interpreted and reinterpreted, and I just found it all very fascinating, and he was a formidable scholar. He may be still alive. I said was. I don't know. So let's move on then to uh, Charleston, which is a very nice city, um, and uh, talk about um, revolutionary mobilization in, um, in houses and in domestic spaces.
1: Right. Well, I thought it would be too easy to only talk about uh, places where people naturally congregate, you know, down by the wharfs for commerce. Uh, in In church every Sunday and sometimes more often and sometimes on saturday uh for uh, uh for for worship or, uh, you know in taverns for drinking uh because the basic unit where uh people tend to spend a lot of their time is after all the household some uh, a place that we don't necessarily think of as public but a place where public political mobilization can indeed take place, and the reason why I was interested in Charleston. Is that, uh, there, the plantation, in the south, the plantation household has, uh, so much resonance for us. And I wanted to see how, if you transplanted that, uh, that household setting to an urban house lot, uh, how did the dynamics of revolution and social relations, uh, play out? What did it mean about relationships between men and women in the household? What did it mean uh, in terms of uh, relationships between master and slave in the household? And then speaking a little bit more metaphorically, how did Americans... Think about uh, their relationship uh, to the House of Hanover, uh, and then the Republican household that they were then creating. Did this it was were, were they built? Were they going to be moving to a new house next door? Henry Lawrence is using that metaphor uh, explicitly. He's a, a South, he's a Charleston planter, uh, someone who made a lot of money trading slaves and, and you know and owned a lot of land where his slaves grew rice, uh, and now he lives in Charleston. And he becomes part of the patriot movement, although somewhat reluctantly at first. And he, when, when, in, in talking about the Declaration of Independence, he describes it as, well, you know, some of the furniture is liable to get damaged as we move to a new house next door. And he, what, what he meant was, was that he was uh, very worried about how whether social relationships could stay the same uh, during this moment of, of upheaval not just uh, between uh, masters and slaves and between men and women but also among different types of of white men the backcountry as opposed to the low country or artisans as opposed to wealthy planters, you know, how are those, how are uh, how are those, uh, how are the mobilizers of the revolution going to manage those social relationships going forward? Because the gentry in South Carolina basically controlled everything. They control most of the wealth. They control uh, the political power almost exclusively. They control social and, and uh, social relationships, cultural style, etc. They are the masters of the house in so many ways. And uh, it's interesting to see how they... Navigate everything as the revolution unfolds, how they make accommodations towards certain groups uh and yet tighten controls over other groups and so that was that, that was what I was looking at in that in that charleston chapter and mm-hmm. so you can see re- reflections of this in the north too uh you know the in the north, the wealthiest members of society don't have quite as exclusive control over their workforce, for instance, but they are—they still would rather stay on top, and so it's interesting to see uh, w- wealthy gentlemen in both the North and South managing these social relationships during a time of political upheaval.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say like the certain passages in the New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, uh, the existence of patriarchy presented kind of a sticky wicket to the revolutionaries themselves, because on the one hand, if you say, yes, you are perfectly justified in overthrowing a tyrant. Um, what does that say about a tyrannical patriarch in a household? Right, I, I, I right. And, and Samuel, J-
1: Samuel Johnson said, you know, why is it that we hear the, uh, the loudest y- yelps for liberty from uh, from the keepers of slaves? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there were, there were plenty of people who were willing to point out this contradiction at the time.
0: Yeah, that would have been worked out quite a while ago uh, by, uh, if I recall correctly, James Filmer in a book called Patriarchia, which was what... Uh, Locke was responding to in the two treaties on government. I really can hardly believe that I remember that, but uh, I think I do. So th- this has been the discussion for a long time because, you know, for political philosophers, this 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 symmetry is 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 uh, just too beautiful to pass up. That is, God is in His heaven, as the king is on his throne, as the master of the house is at the hearth. You know, just right. is, it is it's just too nice, and uh, they, they go for it all the time. But if you were going to suggest that you can overthrow tyrants, then that that is going to have some uh that is going to have some some scary implications did they confront these directly i mean did did the
1: well, yeah, I mean, you know, if I if can I use a non-South Carolina example, John Adams is worried about this sort of thing, too. A lot of people looked around and they said, you know, students are being obnoxious to their teachers, children are being obnoxious to their parents, women are being obnoxious to men, servants and slaves are being obnoxious to their masters. Uh, there were plenty of uh, elite members of society in the 18th century who were really unhappy about some of the social forces that were being unleashed by the by the revolution and eventually you uh, you know the elite is able to bring things back under control but society does not look precisely the same uh, after the revolution slavery of course is still in place and uh, you know women are still subject to coverture and all sorts of uh, re- restrictions on on their rights but among white men the the, the chessboard looks a lot different uh, a- after the revolution and so you know there is a sense that you can't necessarily put, put the cat back in the bag yeah. uh, once once the revolution is all over.
0: Yeah, that, that's fascinating because I think if you uh, flash forward to 1830 and and, and Tocqueville coming t- to America, I mean he basically says that Americans are obnoxious. I mean, insofar yeah. as he says that's what he. I mean, if you read between the lines, he says they treat each other equally, but what he says is they have no respect for each other. They they, right. <laughs> they are obnoxious by his standards. Um, so it wasn't as if right. those people were really wrong. <laughs> Authority did break down, um, at least of the yeah. kind that the English were used to. Sure, sure, and 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 you know, and
1: uh, and the elites really struggle to to reassert their their, their authority, uh, and that's you know that's what the, what, what subsequent decades are going to be all about in American history.
0: And now everybody is obnoxious. Deference is gone except to professional athletes, I think. But uh, no, that's just my own personal feeling about that. But uh, and my students are actually, my students are not rude to me. They're actually very nice I have to say that they're very, very nice to me.
1: The, cool. uh, we do, uh, academics like to think that that's because now we're now everything is respected on the basis of meritocracy. But,
0: yeah, no, uh, I think it's just because I I
1: we might be our grades.
0: Yeah, no, I'm more of a Chicago school guy there. I think it's because they know I have a little bit of power over them. So oh, once that yeah. once that's over, that they're it's not going to have a bad grade. That's exactly right. Yeah, I don't I don't think that they I don't think that. Yeah. I think they know, they they, they know where, um, yeah, they know where the power is. So they they're nice to me. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I'll probably hear from them about that. So let's let's move on then. Are to, the tuition payers right? They're yeah, exactly. Well, they the yeah. loci of power. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I you know I like to tell people that I serve the people of Iowa. I really do, just like any public employee. The uh, let's move on to Philadelphia then, um, which is again one of my favorite cities. Um, although they took the Rocky statue down, which was a huge mistake. So uh, there you talk about. Uh, what, what we usually think of actually as, as the kind of locus classicus of revolutionary activity, and that is the, I'm sure I'm going to get the words wrong, but the State House and these sort of public squares and spaces. Go ahead and talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, the Pennsylvania State House is now what we know of as Independence Hall. And so I, I was looking at that. That's obviously a classic symbol of the revolution. It's on the back of the $100 bill. Uh, but I was also looking at uh, Independence Square, which is now uh which was then called uh the state house yard which is not an area that we normally think about that's actually where a lot of the action was happening not the signing of the declaration of independence but the the crowds that were uh that were gathering in the thousands uh and helping to push some uh some very reluctant delegates towards uh feeling more permissive towards independence and so yes, yeah, that's the space that i'm looking at in philadelphia is uh playing with this idea of politics out of doors that uh you, you know in pennsylvania uh eventually the people got really annoyed with the quaker dominated uh uh provincial government because they uh... they had all this power and they weren't necessarily advocating for the things that many westerners or many presbyterians or many sons of liberty uh... wanted to see happen and so eventually uh, eventually they there's more and more of this out-of-door a- uh, agitation uh... until ba- basically the provincial assembly is uh... dispensed with uh, entirely uh... and that's the moment when uh... when, when independence becomes possible uh, of course, you know, this is a society that had been founded by Quakers, and they try to do all of this very politely. Uh, and there isn't actually a lot of overt violence in, uh, in Philadelphia in a way that you see in Boston and New York. Uh, part of that is also because there's, uh, there's not a British troop presence in Philadelphia during these years. But, uh, but yeah, that's the dynamic I'm looking at for Philadelphia is the, the agitation that takes place just outside of this famous building, the State House. Uh, later Independence Hall. It's the, it's the agitation taking just, it, it, taking place just outside it that really fascinated me because there are just, uh, a series of these, uh, these, uh, meetings, uh, after the passage of the Stamp Act, uh, in response to the Tea Act, uh, uh, when the Continental Congress is meeting where just, just hundreds of people are gathering in this square, uh, and, and making their voice, uh, voice heard and politics out of doors becomes the be, be, becomes this uh, this crucially important uh, force in uh, in local, provincial, and and imperial politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this chapter resonated with me significantly because I was fortunate enough to be in the Soviet Union when it became Russia and the Commonwealth of Independent States in in nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety two, and I got to see how important these public places were for the. Uh, the movements, because there were many of them in 1991 and 1992, but there are kind of main squares, they're not really squares, because the Soviets uh, built their cities in order to avoid this kind of thing, but they really couldn't prevent it. There there were places where people knew to congregate all over the city. Dershinsky Square was one of them, and Red Square was another, but there were also a series of large... Um, train stations in central Moscow and people knew to congregate there and there would just be spontaneous protests all over the place and the funny part about it was is that you couldn't really tell the protests from what they called the the talkuchka, which is a basically a spontaneous market where people would just show up and sell stuff so I, mm-hmm. I as a foreigner I couldn't really tell I was like you know, well is that a protest they protesting something or are they over there selling stuff I, I couldn't really tell but they all took place in these 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 locales, which which then became identified as that's where you go to, uh, you know, to, to, to register your protest. The Soviets, by the way, never allowed any of this stuff. It was, it was absolutely um, off sure. limits. But but after 91, it really it really blew up. So, as I say, this was this this really resonated uh, with me. Let, let me um, go ahead.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting because in Philadelphia, the initial. Uh, place that I talk about is the, uh, the, this, the, the old courthouse, which no longer exists. It was destroyed in the 19th century, but the, the, the courthouse where the city government met was built right on top of the market stalls. Uh, and that used to be the public space where everyone congregated. And you did have some very violent, uh, election fights in the 1740s, and, uh, and it gets hairy, and during elections in 1760s, that's where, uh, elections for the provincial assembly, uh, for the Philadelphia delegates, uh, Uh, are held, and so it's, it it is a very raucous place. And the state house is built, like, just as you were saying about the Russians, the, the, the Russians and the Soviets, they, uh, you know, they did build the state house with the idea that it, that those kind of gatherings wouldn't take place there because they build it on what was at the time the outskirts of the city. Uh, the state house yard has an eight foot wall encircling it. Uh, you, you know, and it's a, it's a space that you can very much, uh, that, that in an ideal w- world for them, they would have been able to watch and control and, and, and manage. But uh, but that doesn't happen, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the meetings happen in in, in Independence Square anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and so I found uh, I found that to be uh, uh, an interesting uh, twist on what on what unfolded during those years.
0: Well, and still goes on. I mean, what happened? You know, the, the, the Tiananmen Square uh, riots, or whatever you want to call them, were in Tiananmen Square. So, mm-hmm. I, th- I think your thesis is an extraordinarily uh, good one. Let me talk. Uh, ask you to talk just a little bit about the the final chapter, the epilogue, really. Uh, and I found it completely fascinating and compelling um and the, and the uh the, the the thesis of it if I recall correctly was that um that the British did what they could do and that 's what armies can always do, and that is take cities so they took these coastal cities um and then because the 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 the, the cities became identified with the British occupation and with loyalism, they kind of fell out of favor in the American consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, yeah, what's fascinating is, my. I mean, the main thesis of my, one of the main uh, arguments of my book is that the cities are crucially important for, uh, for making the revolution possible, there are these dynamic places where political mobilization is taking place. Every, you know, almost all the incidents that we read about from 1765 to 1774, it's it's hard to imagine how the revolution would have happened without the cities and their communicative uh, capabilities and, uh, and their and, and just their their importance as dynamic places. But as soon as the military enters into this story in a serious way, the equation completely shifts. At that point. Because of the power of the British Navy and the British desire to occupy these cities uh, at that point, the cities are vulnerable for the same reason that you go you build a city in the first place it's because it's on a deep harbor and you're going to be able to trade there and you're going to be able to welcome ships from all over the world well unfortunately, that means it's also very easy for a naval ship to get in there, and and the British Navy was so much more powerful than anything the Americans uh, could put forth, that all these cities immediately become extremely vulnerable. And from the very beginning, the Americans say, well, that's okay, you know, despite these cities having uh, been been important, and they weren't necessarily willing to uh, acknowledge that importance, but despite uh, the, the fact that we... You know, love these cities and and whatever. We will we will happily abandon them. We'll be able to live off the fat of the land in the countryside. We'll be able to get goods to one another and march troops uh, in the interior of the continent. And you can take any of these cities that you want, and uh, and and all we have to do is make them miserable places for you to be and basically trap you there, and you'll never have control over any of the area of North America except for these little cities. And now, I mean, they're not totally in agreement about that. They do give up these cities very reluctantly, and the city the city fathers of each of these cities uh are often uh you know kicking and screaming about this and they're you know they become angry with the army that the army is willing to uh to abandon those cities. But once those cities uh, are abandoned, they really become uh, a, a millstone around the necks of the British army. They uh, and they end up uh, uh, the, and the cities are the last places that the that the British leave. But they they they're only helpful in some respects. They're good places to quarter troops. Uh, they're good places to quarter your army in winter. They're good places to uh, to dock your ships. But they uh, they they uh, they turn out to not be that effective for launching their troops further into the interior. They make a stab at that in South Carolina, uh, and then eventually it's all gonna fall apart on them because they overextend themselves. But just holding a city does not mean that you hold an entire colony Mm -hmm. uh in uh in America. And so and so yeah, what happens then is that the Americans uh then will turn against the cities in a sense and 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 diminish their importance in future years and they'll say uh... you know look at that uh... You, you know the cities were the places where they were able to gather all these loyal loyalist civilians Uh, where the British were able to gather all these loyalist civilians to their side. These are places where uh, we sort of remember a lot of riots and mutinies happening anyway. Uh, You you know, we we were sort of unhappy with some of the political unrest that was going on. Uh, Maybe the coastal, these large coastal cities won't be at the center of American politics anymore. And over the next few decades, what you'll see is you'll see... Uh, state capitals moving further inland to smaller towns like Albany or Richmond uh and you'll see uh you know you'll you'll see cities play not as big a political role they'll still be of tremendous economic importance but uh but their political importance it, it, you know it won't be quite the same uh as was it as what it had been during the 1760s and 1770s
0: yeah i find all that completely fascinating again especially in the kind of comparative Perspective, because on the one hand, what you say reminds me of the much later, I believe it's um, Mao, who is famous for saying something like, "The rebellion in the countryside is like a fish in water." Did he say something like that? I, I can't really remember. It was something like that. The Chinese history is not necessarily not mine either, as you can tell. But uh, one of our listeners can uh, contact me about the proper, uh, the the. Um, the the, the proper thing that he said, and then the second thing is, is that if you look at revolutionary iconography, and again, I don't know a lot about these things, but you know, the things that flash into my mind when I think about the uh, Revolutionary War, as opposed to the pre-revolutionary period, are Washington crossing the Delaware. There he's in the middle of nowhere, right? right? Uh, Minute Men, right. and if you've ever, been, you of course have been to Lexington and Concord, that's like you know, out on a field, and there's a guy with a rifle, right. or not a rifle, but a musket, and uh, you know, you know, I don't, I mean, there's the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's kind of a famous picture. Uh, but but then if you take it and you compare it to um revolutionary iconography in, in the Russian Revolution, it's all urban. In the Russian Revolution, it's all urban. It all takes place in St. Petersburg, uh Stroming Winter Palace, um and the rest of it, it's all it's you know, Lenin in, 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 in Red Square, later in Moscow. It's all it's all urban. It's totally urban. Um whereas here we have kind of this I don't know, it's a And then, you know, the cult of Cincinnatus kind of thing. I don't know. Someone's probably written a book about that in American history, but somebody should if they haven't because we still. of the
1: biographies of uh, of Washington is called Cincinnatus.
0: Yeah, Yeah, right. We still have that on the brain, and I think that's a good thing, by the way. Um, But anyway, I think, yeah, no, I found that extraordinarily uh, uh, interesting. And Americans still think of cities as kind of. They're still a little bit suspicious about cities, as opposed to like the way French people think. You know, people, French people think cities are great and Paris is wonderful, but Americans still think. Yeah, cities. and part of that is it's, it's hard to talk about. If
1: you're going to tell a rah rah story of American history, it's very hard to talk about New York City, which uh, is occupied by the British in 1776 <laughs> and remains a part of the British until 1783. It's actually sort of intriguing to think like, what would have happened if they turned Manhattan into something like Hong Kong and remained right. a British? Elsewhere. Uh, in the midst of America Uh, I don't don't think that necessarily would have been realistic but but yeah all of these cities become occupied by the British Army at one point or another Uh, and so these are you know places with not quite good reputations if you want to see it that way
0: yeah that's very very interesting the Hong Kong analogy is perfect though they really might have done something like that but they didn't so anyway yeah with all due respect to New Yorkers you did a fine job during the revolution and so on and so forth well Ben we have taken up a huge amount of your time and uh, we really I uh, appreciate it, although I know that it's raining there and you can't go play in the park. Uh, still, it's been uh, very nice of you to uh, share all of this with us. Our, our traditional final question on New Books and History is, of course, what is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, right now I am about three-quarters of the way through a manuscript on the Boston Tea Party which I'm very excited about because we haven't had a full-length scholarly work on the Tea Party itself uh, since the 1960s, and it's time for an update, and I have a lot of new things to say about that. Uh, and then in uh, a subsequent project that I'm going to start at some point after I'm done with this manuscript uh, is something that... Uh, I wanted to spin out of that last chapter, the the epilogue of Rebels Rising, something we were just talking about. Uh, I'm going to be working on the phenomenon of destruction of towns, cities, and uh, and Native American settlements during the Revolutionary War. So those are my next two projects. The Tea Party book, I I don't know what the production schedule is going to look like, but I'm, I'm almost done doing my part.
0: It's great. It's so great. Do you that'll ever, be, that'll do you, be really exciting. I was going to say, do you ever sleep? Do you sleep or anything? <laughs> I <laughs> do
1: sleep. Sabbatical has been helpful <laughs> for at least getting, being able
0: to get some sleep. Maybe they're putting, yeah, they're putting uh, something in the coffee up there in Somerville these days that they didn't have when <laughs> when I was there. I uh, I don't recall ever being that productive when I was there. So anyway, congratulations on those. And as I always tell the authors who have been so gracious as to be on the show, when you're done, definitely call me, and we will uh, we'll have another chat about both of those books, at least I hope that we will. Okay. Well, thanks. Yeah, we'll talk in disguises again. Yeah, oh, Yeah. okay. All right. Well, uh, we've been talking to Ben Karp about his terrific new book, Rebels Rising, Cities in the American Revolution. Ben, thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for a stimulating conversation. All right.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Karp about his new book, Rebels Rising, Cities in the American Revolution. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.